This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. And also, please feel free to subscribe to our newsletter on Substack, microcapnewsletter.substack.com, so that you can be notified of all new podcasts, new Q&As, new, a whole bunch of stuff, Vegas, the, the whole bit. So uh, you can find us on Substack as well. Speaking of Vegas, the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas is happening April 30 through May 2nd, 2024 at the Paris Hotel and Casino. We have announced our first keynote and speaker, Andrew Walker, host of the Yet Another Value podcast, will be back to host a keynote Q&A with a legendary small microcap investor, Bob Body. Our event brings together the best investors and thought leaders in microcap, quality microcap investing opportunities, and above all else, the most fun and highest return on your time that you could ask for. There's more announcements to come, but registration is open. So if you'd like to register to participate, please visit planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, my guest on the show today is Josh Young, founder and portfolio manager at Bison Interests. We last chatted on the podcast back in July 2023, so I figured it was time for our semi-annual conversation on energy markets. It was a rough second half of 2023 for oil and gas. Josh provides his postmortem on what happened, plus how 2024 is setting up when considering all the macro news on the horizon, geopolitical events currently happening, elections later this year, but all things considered, why Josh thinks there is a decent chance that oil could do well this year. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Josh Young. Josh, it was a pleasure, man. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Oh, you know, just uh, just telling you a little bit offline. You know, it's it's grind season, dude. You know, last time we had you on was July 2023. That was the last time we did the interview. We talked about a bunch of things. I mean, obviously everything having to do with oil and gas. And if anybody saw my tweet, like, yeah, we're not talking biotech or tech today. Um, but, you know, at that time we said, you know, oil and gas was off the radar. Um, you know, so I just kind of want to reflect on 2023 first, before we kind of get into some of the other stuff, you know, can you give your, your postmortem on 2023 and uh, we'll go from there. Well, most importantly, we were talking about books offline. I said, hey, don't turn on the recording. So, you know, I was talking about a marketing book I had read recently written by a family friend. You were telling me about a couple of books written by Morgan Household, who I used to work with way back when and who I actually went to Omaha with, which is happening right around your conference. So, um, you know, there's a there's a lot to there's a lot to chat about. This is true. I I was going to I was telling you that uh, I picked up Material World by Ed Conway and I'm just, I'm so pumped to read it. I mean, I you know it's on the list. I'm trying. I'm getting into reading again. I'm finally figuring out. I went went to the beach uh, for a few days last week, and actually, I was reading this marketing book, and then reading uh, Howard Marks's uh, Mastering the Market Cycle, which is oh, nice. fascinating. Heck yeah! Oh, that's awesome. 
Yeah. No, I think we should, you know, maybe that'll be our next interview uh, later this year is our uh, our collective reading list and what we thought was good, what was maybe a skip it or maybe what was a skim. I'm I'm starting to realize that quite a few, especially on the, the financial books and that that's not any of the books that either I've mentioned or will read, but you know, some of them are, you know, you can kind of just skim, you know, like, okay, you know, it's all right. But then like, especially with material world, like that one, I'm, I'm super fascinated by um, having covered commodities forever, but you know, there's a few in there that I just love the, the deep dive. Anyways, back to my question. Yep. You know what I found yeah. is as, as I've become more of, I guess, like a content creator, it used to be really hard. It's still hard to write bison, like monthly and quarterly letters and stuff um, and, and white papers. But um, I, I've put a lot out now on Twitter and in these sorts of interviews. And actually, I think you did one of the first interviews I ever did uh, like this. I think it was you. And then I was on an oil companies. Uh, they, they do oil field chemicals that they, I was on their their podcast. I can't remember which came first, but it's, it's funny just sort of how these things go. Um, but uh I'm actually, I, think, I was gonna say i hope they don't i they don't blend into one you know at, at a certain point you know i mean look at the end of the day like you know i think you're getting on the point about content creation at the end you know like it's just really important to be caught up on everything that's going on i mean people can probably hear you know where our pod has kind of evolved from is you know we used to kind of feature new PMs and new fund managers. And, and now we've kind of more evolved into just like really covering latest headlines, themes, sectors, and, and getting, you know, folks who are experts in the field to get their perspective on that. And that, that I think is kind of been a natural progression. I mean, look, small microcaps, it's a pretty small community, right? Like there's, there's only so many uh, PMs and, and buy side that actually, you know, have a, a micro strategy anymore. You know, it's, it's more or less micro at this point, you know, so that's kind of how we've been thinking about things here. Yeah, for sure. Oh, right. So what I was trying to say was, yeah. I've noticed that actually, I care more about the details and the writing style of some of these books. And it's fascinating, because sometimes you like open up a book that you sort of skim through, like you were talking about trying to pick up investment concepts. And there's so much there. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's the opposite. You, you go to read it, and it's like, there's nothing there. Um, but uh, it's it's been pretty, pretty interesting to go back through some of the classics and just sort of see where like, you know, I've Twilight in the Desert up on the bookshelf, I'd go through that every once in a while, mm -hmm. and think about, um, you know, uh, uh, Arjun uh, Murthy was at uh, Goldman, and now I think mm -hmm. Veriton, a uh, famous uh, energy uh, expert, he, he posted something recently about Saudi's um, oil production, how they basically had almost never produced more than 10 million barrels a day. And this was something that actually, um, you know, was in Twilight in the Desert, it was in Bison's white papers on OPEC plus spare capacity. And it's just so helpful to sort of see that and then go back through and see how it was originally sort of framed in Twilight in the Desert. And sometimes these concepts or observations of sort of physical, uh, physical limitations or, or other sorts of things like that um or aspects of psychology like some of the stuff in in uh, morgan Housel's book um the first book uh really just you know they're, they're timeless and sometimes you don't even really notice it the first time you go through it but then you go back through and see it again and it's just there's there's sometimes a lot more insight that's uh that's buried in, in some of these things oh 100 on my list right now i have a few rereads of um of uh some like you know i've i read i read one up on wall street like that was my first ever book 
in finance that I read and I haven't read it since. And like now having done this podcast for however, almost 10 years and being in my, like, I, I need to, I, I've been like, kind of been like staring at me and just like reread me, reread me. Like it'll be totally interesting, cool, different perspective now. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm, I'm, uh, cause I always loved reading, but like, especially when, you know, you have two kids now too, man. Like once you have the kids and stuff and you're like trying to figure out like, priorities and you know all that kind of stuff you know finally this year was just like all right i'm i miss it so much like i need to like dive deep again and try to keep you know mix it up i don't just got finance books i got you know i got a couple novels and stuff you know and a couple biographies whatever I'm just trying you gotta get uh try peter lynch on you know he owns some small and micro cap oil and gas stocks you hear about this from various executives and maybe maybe he'll come uh chat with you Oh yeah, I just talked to somebody who was at I guess the uh, ICR conference, and they uh, they saw him walking around there, and so like that's just a trip, right? Like he's still he's still in it, man. He's still you know retired, right? You know. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's crazy because yeah. if you look at what he owns, and then you know there's been a little bit of media. It wasn't all positive about uh, Buffett's personal account, but you look at what Buffett has owned in his PA and what he's talked about none of these folks are going and buying like mega caps with their personal money. It's always, it's always funny. Like you, you see people like with their personal money, Oh yeah, I own IBM or Microsoft or whatever. And it's like, what, what are you doing? Like, that's not, that's not the path to be able to compound money above market returns. The path is to go down cap to small and micro cap where there's really just, you know, way less information, way less understanding and way more potential for better returns. Literally, that's what, like page 15 from Chris Mayer's 100 baggers, right? Like I, it's on my list of rereads right now, you know, like that's it. She said it better than I could even try and articulate myself. Um, so yeah, everybody should come to Planet Microcap. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but all right, all right. Task at hand. We're talking O and G. We're talking energy. Talking resources. You know, I think that you know it's good to do this at the beginning of the year to kind of you know assess a little bit what happened last year. We can look ahead also as well. So you know, I already kind of more or less asked the, my first question here, but I'll I'll just reiterate because we we went on a nice tangent of you know why microcaps are awesome and why uh you know everybody should uh you know follow it. But you know like I said we we re, we chatted about oil and gas uh back July 2023. We said at that time it was off the radar. So let's start with like that with your quick uh postmortem on 2023. Yeah, so so I'll frame this from the perspective of oil and gas small cap stocks because I think that's sort of you know, like you mentioned there is a limited universe of folks who focus on this professionally, but I think you and I would agree that uh, many people watching this, whether it's personal individual investors who should consult an advisor, and none of this is investment advice or anything, but you know of interest for them potentially because of the uh, asymmetries of information and so on, as well as frankly for a lot of um, professional investors and brokers and so on who with their personal money end up doing sometimes quite different things that you know can be much more rewarding than than what they're doing with their limitations and their in their careers um so you know i think i think it makes sense to think about it from that perspective and there have been very few times in my career where um oil and gas small caps and energy small caps have done worse relative to energy large caps as well as the broader market than the last roughly six months. It's been wild and negative and just sort of remarkable in terms of, you know, already 
six months ago, I would have said, hey, and I, I think I did that, you know, this is an out of favor area and, you know, small caps are, are oversold and so on. And then they just, <laughs> it just got worse. And, you know, where where it's interesting for oil and gas is that there's so much, um, it, there's so much information asymmetry, there's so much um, of a variance in terms of valuations too, that actually it wasn't even that bad um for for bison in terms of like we had some stuff that actually did really well and we were able to get dividends or sell things that were up or whatever and then redeploy into stuff that's just hated and we've been deploying capital into other small caps and micro caps recently in oil and gas that are like truly hated at huge discounts i was on the phone with the ceo of one of these companies earlier i figured i might talk about it and i was like hey like what's going on with your stock and he said i don't know you know here's a couple of things that aren't great that you know everyone's known but they've known these for six months or so and you know why is our stock down 35 40 percent i don't know um but here's how great we our things are going and here's you know i think the stock is worth a lot more here's why and there's just a nonsensical dislocation it's not not logical it's not rational it's just you know this thing is trading at i think he his estimate for his stock was that it was at about um almost a 50 percent discount to the proved reserve value that was likely you know, they haven't done their up their annual update or whatever so there wasn't <laughs> non-public information because it was his guess and you know that sort of uh jived with my guess um but you know these things oil companies should trade at a premium to their proved developed reserve value and at a discount maybe to their proved improbable impossible value that's sort of the the right bracket from a value perspective and where, where they've mostly traded over time and you know for something to trade at 50 percent of the proved producing value um it's just it's sort of wild it's like way below where the floor is supposed to be so that's been it's been really interesting to see the the um variance in uh returns across these different stocks have, has been sort of interesting to see as well and then i guess like the one other thing to point out uh from an equity perspective is that the large caps have actually done really well and the large caps doing well is important because one they actually got to valuations that would be a huge home run for some of the small caps like if they got from one and a half or two times cash flow to seven or eight or whatever times cash flow that would be pretty um pretty remarkable and then um if uh when when we went out and said hey i think these stocks should trade at a higher valuation a year ago two years ago um when, when they were closer um the argument was well the large caps aren't there and oil and gas stocks shouldn't get this because oil's going away or here are the negatives for the sector or the industry or whatever well now there are a bunch of these stocks that are trading at that level they're just the larger more liquid stocks which ironically maybe should trade at a discount and the small caps that can grow faster that can do more creative deals that are more nimble arguably should trade and historically have traded in up cycles at higher valuations so anyway that's sort of what's been going on from a, a sector equity perspective and it's just one of those things i know in general small caps and micro caps or people view them as out of favor and you know there's been just such a push towards indexing and S&P 500 and the mag seven and whatever. Um, and, you know, when, when something is just totally out of favor and everyone's on one side of the boat, uh, I mean, it's just super exciting to go to that other side. And it just, it feels like, you know, it feels painful and awkward and lonely, but also 
having been through this enough times and over enough years and bison through multiple different like down cycles and mini down cycles in oil. I mean, this is where money is made is going and buying when things are just absolutely hated and left for dead. And, um, you know, valuations are, are so skewed out of favor for the, the stuff that we're buying. Absolutely. I mean, thank you for that full overview there. So let's get into some of maybe the the forces that are also, in your opinion, are driving some of this just out of favoredness for oil and gas. You know, in your opinion, what for the last six months, what have been some of those forces that you think have been causing that? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm experiencing the, the downsides of uh, leaving uh, windows uncovered for interviews. It's uh, it's pretty exciting, but I, I feel like I'm going to just keep this for now and see uh, see see how this goes. I feel like I have like a little bit of a spotlight a spotlight effect, but but I'll, I'll take it's it. It's on you, man. You're the ONG guy. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um, so okay. So so there's some stuff I got wrong last year. Uh, I didn't think that shale was going to grow as much as it did, and. I didn't think that Iranian oil exports were going to grow were going to grow as much as they did and I thought that Chinese oil demand would have grown a little more than it did. And so um the combination of a little less demand than I expected and a lot more supply than I expected hurt the oil market but interestingly it only sort of got it to a similar or slightly lower level to where it was 6 months ago. So um, even with a significant imbalance in on both sides of the equation in the wrong direction, um, you couldn't really get oil below, I think, would it get to 68 or 69 sort of recently? It was really, really hard for it to get knocked down too much. Um, even with all these theses around, oh, like shale is going to grow uncontrollably, which was wrong and is wrong. And, oh, Iran's going to keep exporting even more. Their their exports have already been falling, along with shale production starting to fall right now from too few rigs. Um, and so, and and Chinese demand is, is, is staying pretty steady despite the Chinese stock market imploding, which seems to be driving some stimulus right now, or at least potential stimulus in China. So, it's sort of like some of the worst stuff that you would have thought would have happened besides a major recession in the US or the Western world. And oil prices actually stayed pretty firm and the large cap stocks actually did pretty well. It's just sort of this small cap area that really seemed to trade down in line with the, the negative sort of news flow and the negative sentiment. For sure. And that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, that happened I mean, just in general, you probably you follow this as well, not just you know sector, but from uh, I mean the micro small microcaps have been just getting absolutely killed for the last two years, right? So it kind of falls in line that like, all right, if there's sector weakness, let me get rid of these more spec names and just go into the ones that you know tried and true. I don't have to worry about it because I still you know want to have exposure to ONG. You know, I just let me let me just get rid of these now. And, you know, maybe I'll come back in once maybe the the, the cycle turns a little bit more in their favor. I yeah, mean, that's, but that's the, the, the crazy process. thing is that you end up creating this really phenomenal asymmetry where the larger caps that everyone's sort of hiding in become really uninteresting from a potential or likely forward return perspective. And again, all of this, no one really knows the future, but you can sort of see these sorts of valuations and see how these sorts of cycles have played out. And then you can look on the small cap side um, where the valuations are ultra low and, and extremely undemanding. And you can see how in the past when there have been these sorts of disconnects, um, you know, the, the asymmetry 
is extreme where you can end up doing actually really well in the small caps and the large caps can actually go down or sort of stay flattish in an oil price recovery. And it's, it's interesting to do this interview right now in the last week or so, oil prices have been grinding up over the last, like every day over the last week, just as some of the negative sentiment and some of the negative narratives are starting to unwind a little. There's some data that Iranian exports are falling. There's some data showing that U.S. shale is actually coming down a little from its recent highs, um, and, and that both of those trends might continue. And so, um, you know, it's sort of interesting to the extent that that continues. If you think about what the valuations are on the small caps here, um, it could get really fun and really interesting really fast. 100%. Yeah, you were mentioning on your Twitter feed, um, you were looking at the oil inventory declines and stuff like that. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So. Um, I'm a little hesitant to, to focus on them too much. I think one of the things I learned in the last couple of years is that many of the uh, data providers, um, uh, they're not 100% that the data, and they, they put it in their disclaimers, right? It's not 100% reliable. And when there are changes, sometimes they sort of don't, don't catch them. So um, I'm much more hesitant to rely on those sorts of measures. And I, you can probably notice in terms of the way I, I talk about it, I, I'm a lot more cautious. Um, but yep. You know, with that being said, you can be cautious and also aware of what the data is showing. And the data is showing that global oil inventories are falling actually quite rapidly. And that some of the places that people were saying there were large inventories, it's actually not true. They're quite small. And then both oil on water offshore Iran, as well as onshore China are two places that were sort of cited as like potential problems from oil, an oil inventory perspective. And both of them, I mean, China uh, inventories are down a lot, particularly for, uh, I think it was uh, Sinopec um, that that had like lo very large inventories, a big portion of the of the overall China onshore inventories and, and their inventories were down a lot. And that matters. It matters that it's them because um, if it's, uh, Sinopex inventory is down. China is more likely to restock them. And so um, that means that there's going to be, and we're already starting to see some physical market demand that's um, that's coming in to sort of prop up the uh, the market and to, that should translate to the financial markets as well. So, uh, you know, I, I want to also ask from a historical perspective, because like you said, you've been, a, you've seen a few of these cycles go, you know, happen over the years. So, I mean, what does, what, what, with what, everything that we're experiencing right now, what is this most similar to in your experience in oil and gas? Uh, so it's more, it's most similar to times that I wasn't doing this professionally, um, which it sort of feels like a cop-out because I didn't live through it. But, you know, I read a lot, not just sort of general finance or whatever, but also uh, reports from oil companies and news reports from uh, prior periods and looking at data from prior periods. And it really does look like the, um, the data... Um, the data now, it looks sort of similar, I'd say, maybe to like the early 2000s um, or sort of similar to like 1975 or so for the oil market in particular. And again, like it's not exactly the same, but just sort of the general setup in terms of the available supply coming from certain places and it being disappointing or harder to get than people are thinking, um, along with the demand 
consensus demand coming in higher than people were expecting. Um, and then, you know, the early 2000s, it really resonates for me because um, there's been sort of this resurgence of the dot-com era narrative of like technology winning and software eating everything and you know, this sort of stuff where like technology is really important and, you know, there, there, there are these great trends and improved productivity and other sorts of enhancements from technology, but there's also a cyclicality to technology. And when people get too excited about it and start to believe that it does everything, that's generally a good sign that you want to go buy some physical stuff. And uh, oil is really good because not only is it physical, it's also necessary to provide other physical stuff. And so you can sort of get this double win like you saw in the early 2000s and in the 70s. Sure. You know, another another topic I wanted to ask you about, and I can't believe I, I can't believe I haven't asked you about this before, but, you know, how closely do you look at like energy services, energy tech companies? Because it seems like especially in downturns, you know, you would hope that some of these producers would adopt some of these new, um, I guess you'd say new systems or new tech in order to make sure that they can run the business, you know, efficiently during maybe these down markets. So have you, have you looked at that sector at all? Do you look at any companies uh, in, in that space? Yeah. So a good friend was a co-founder of a, uh, energy analytics company that's basically won their portion of the market. Um, and I should have been an investor in that. <laughs> I don't really do private uh, venture type stuff, but that's been, I mean, it was just extraordinary from the friends and family round, I think at a 5 million value or something to uh, their latest in the multi hundreds of millions of dollar value. So whoops. Um, <laughs> but um, Dang. <laughs> you know, I, I do, I do follow it. And that was sort of, that was a wake up call. Hey, I should like pay more attention to this um you know the, i have been buying stocks in oil services companies at large discounts to the replacement cost of their assets i sort of like that it's more of a sort of old tech sort of perspective rather than or almost like a real estate type strategy like buying at a huge discount to replacement cost and then sort of letting the cycle help you um but some of the producers that I'm invested in are either directly or indirectly applying technology differently. And I wrote about this last year, and it was amazing how much people hated it. And it was sort of it was one of these like Emperor Palpatine style, like, oh, like I want to channel the hate, like, come on, like, come, come with more, more of this. But um, one of the companies that I'm invested in that I've talked about a number of times before, and, you know, people should do their own diligence on it and so on, is uh, Vital Energy. And Vital... Um, is hated for a lot of reasons. Some of them are fair, but some of them are very unfair. And they're they're excellent operators. They had a couple of problems with wells in um, late 2022, and you know it took a little while for them to grow through those problems. But their operating costs have fallen a lot in the fields that they've acquired. And one of the ways they've done it is through uh, the implementation of uh, AI on their their essentially their operating uh, processes and their software systems. And so um, people are like, oh, hey, this isn't an AI company. And it's like, well, what what is AI supposed to do? It's supposed to make you more efficient. It's supposed to make you more productive. It's supposed to save you money. It's supposed to save you time. It's supposed to get you more, you know, more upside and less downside. And it was accomplishing that. They were getting, they were producing more and it was costing them less. And people just mocked it. And sure, you know, they weren't the brilliant like software engineers creating the AI that they were implementing. They were just very cleverly taking 
AI that was available and software that was available and applying it effectively and applying it better, frankly, than a lot of their peers. So yeah, follow it very closely um, and in, in, in sort of different ways, whether it's through investing in some of the services companies where, where technology is a big component or you know some of the producers where, again, it's sort of people are like, oh, this thing is so far from an AI company. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, sure, it's definitely not a semiconductor company, but it is a company where they can, and they actually measure their improvement from these particular things. And you know, they showed a multiple percent increase in revenue and a multiple percent decrease in costs which is amazing, right? How many other places have you seen actual tangible financial impacts from AI other than just ordering software or ordering uh, microchips? So um, anyway, yes, very, very much so. But also like people's resistance and hatred of this was was sort of exciting too. Um, you know, of course, small cap companies can't possibly effectively implement technology if they're not technology companies. So well, um yeah, I mean, well, also, I bet there is that fear of like, oh, no, here here we go. It's going to be like what it was with cannabis. And, uh, you know, they were an oil and gas company. And now they're, you know, ABCD AI company or whatever the heck, you know, that's a, yeah. it's a fun thing but, that, you know, that happens. But they weren't, right? They weren't saying they, they weren't. Yeah. Company. They were just saying, hey, we implement this. <laughs> yeah. How well we've done with it. And it's right. great. And, you know, and it's just so strange that like you think. And it's actually, I think it's very promising. And, and again, like I'm, I'm, I'm some of that I was saying sort of sarcastically, like there is a, there's a huge benefit when people hate things so much that when they apply the newest thing and they actually show a real tangible accounting and financial benefit, people dismiss it and say, oh, it's not the thing. And the history of it is that First, you have the software providers and the, the hardware providers uh, implement these things, but then the users end up with way more benefit. And that's where sort of that MAG7 trade last year was going, where people were like, hey, these companies actually are going to win much more from using AI. And you still have like the NVIDIAs of the world trading very well and, you know, um, seeing a lot of, uh, of market, uh, you know, credit essentially for um for being the the hardware provider essentially for AI, but in the end, these things are there. There's a purpose for them, and I I just it's so interesting to see companies actually sort of being an early adopter and a winner using it, and then that being hated. I mean, that was really um, it was great as a sentiment check, and then it's also I mean, hey, it feels really good to. And invest in a company where you know you give them very little credit or no credit essentially for this, and you get higher revenue and lower costs. I mean, uh, I, I hope they do more of that and other companies do it too. 100%. So um, another topic I wanted to get to on uh, oil and gas energy is, you know, and it goes along the lines with oil inventory declines. And like you said, some of that data, you know, it's, it's cautionary tale in terms of trusting where the data is also coming from. But assuming that it's the case, you know, I wanted to get your perspective on new drilling. An exploration and if you're starting to see more of that happen now or is it more just curious let's go from there yeah so so there's been the there's sort of the micro stuff and then there's sort of the macro zoom out like why is oil and gas interesting why does it make sense to own oil and gas equities on a multi-year time frame basis and the the single most compelling thing to me um is that there's been way less oil discovered than has been used for the last decade. 
So we're not replacing global reserves via exploration. And we're starting to see a little more exploration activity now, and hopefully that will lead to more discoveries. But we're still in the like, I think that was another uh, Arjun put out stuff on this and other you know investment banks and so on put out uh, research on it too. Um, you know, so we're still in the roughly 10% or so discovery versus production. And you really should be discovering more than you're producing because demand has been rising every year and it seems likely to continue on that trend for some time. And so, um, yeah, you're seeing a little more activity. You're not seeing that much more discoveries yet. And, and there's also some confusion, uh, some popular confusion, I guess, where you'll see announcements of discoveries by or in Guyana, for example, but not really discoveries. It's really just sort of a field extension or whatever in an area that was discovered um, 20 years ago and then more delineated in like 2015. And so um, what you need are more Guianas. You don't need more wells in Guiana to delineate what you already sort of know, know you have. I mean, you need those too, but you'd want to see more of that sort of original exploration activity. And so without that, um, you know, it's pretty, uh, pretty promising, but also, you know, you sort of want to see it because you don't want the world to actually run out of oil, which is a real risk if this sort of trend, you know, you won't see that happen. But uh, if the trend were just extrapolated linearly, that's, that's what you would get. Very good. So next topic. So I don't mean to like go topic after no, okay. time. I'm just, you know, I, we got, there's so much I, and I'm not going to talk to you for another six months. So I got to make sure, you know, I get it all in. Um, another thing I wanted to talk was a uh, macro again, you know, we talked about some of the forces that were affecting what happened in 2023. Now let's talk about some of these macro forces that could affect 2024. We got fed lowering interest rates, an election, two wars, you know, uh, uh how should folks think about energy and oil and gas when you're considering what's basically going to be now on the docket for most of the duration of 2024, everybody would expect. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're seeing the reversal of some of the negative stuff from 2023. And so it's pretty exciting. Again, if you think about how negative the sentiment was, how negative some of these changes were and oil really having trouble getting below $70 a barrel for very long or by very much. Um, in that context. So that does seem like it was sort of, it's not exactly a floor, but it sort of acted like one multiple sort of mini downturns over the last two years. So that's, that's exciting because if you have um, things that are less negative, then, you know, maybe oil goes, WTI oil goes to 80 or 90. And then if you end up with things that are actually truly positive, maybe you end up with much more upside. So there's a couple of things. I mean, there's a lot, that, a lot that's been said about the um, Red Sea uh, issue where the Houthis are shooting at ships uh, in the U.S. and other countries are now bombing Yemen to try to, to stop the Houthis from attacking these ships. And a lot of ships are now going around um, the, uh, was it the Horn of Africa, so what it's called. Um, and so um, you're, you're already seeing more oil consumption purely just from ships going around and going faster to, to avoid this issue. Um, but there's also this potential risk of supply disruption, which we're not really seeing yet. But if we see any supply disruption, 
in a market that arguably now is undersupplied, which again, is not the consensus, but based on data from multiple sources, which again, are not super reliable, but you know, when you see it from enough places and you start to see the physical mar- market tighten and you see the market structure improve and you start hearing about people like bidding on cargos and not getting 100% of what they're bidding on. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting um, and, and validates uh, some of these more sort of theoretical, I would argue, data sets. Um, if you have any sort of supply disruption in a tight market, you could see prices move how you would have thought prices would move when you first saw war start in the Middle East. So I think there is there's asymmetry mostly to the upside. Um, there is still risk that we end up in a bad recession. There's a lot of the um, economic data sort of bifurcated where the private market's doing quite poorly and uh, government spending and uh, deficit spending seems to be driving a lot of what's measured as economic growth. And, you know, there's sort of it's one of those things where if it was a public company, if like the U.S. economy was a public company, the uh, um, the revenue would be rising, but the or the cash flow would be rising, but the debt adjusted cash flow would be falling. And so the debt adjusted GDP is actually quite unimpressive um, in the U.S. right now, and you know Europe is struggling. So if things get worse. Um, which is possible, then um, you know there there could be some material downside to oil. The flip side is that there it wasn't great last year, and there was a freight recession, which seems to be unwinding. And so there there could be um, there could be some countervailing positives, even if there's a an economic downturn in the U.S. Um, so I think I think it's complicated. I think there's some asymmetry to the upside, and there's probably a fair price for oil here, which um, at current inventory levels maybe is a little over eighty dollars a barrel WTI. And as inventory levels fall more, um, there's there's this theory around sort of a, a comparative inventory calculation where you look at historical prices versus inventories, and you figure out, hey, at this price you've tended to, or sorry, at this inventory level you've tended to this price, and so when you look at those studies, you get to the high 70s, low 80s, and the trajectory is up. So um, absent anything significant happening, if things just sort of continued how they are more or less, maybe you'd end up with oil in the high 80s or low 90s over the course of the year. Very good. So, you know, ignoring the price of oil when considering, you know, what you want to see in, let's say, some of these smaller uh, oil and gas names or uh, small cap, micro cap, you know, what would you, let's, let's assume both sides, let's, or let's assume the worst. How about that? Let's assume that it's just, it, it's a bad environment, you know, economy sucks, all that kind of stuff. You know, what are some of the things that you would like to see from some of the smaller cap names that would give you confidence that they'll be able to sustain maybe a continued downturn? So, um, a lot of them, it's just you want to see them keep doing what they're doing, which is paying off debt, buying back stock, paying dividends, doing accretive acquisitions, and in some cases, divesting assets at large premiums relative to where they're trading. So um, more of that. And then for some companies, they've been buying, they've been paying off debt and they're about to shift to buying back stock or paying dividends. And so to the extent that they shift towards capital return or increase their capital return, that does seem to help. And then there is a reality, which is um, I, I don't own Alpha Pole, but um, that stock has gone crazy through a buyback. And I think it's sort of inspiring a wave of buybacks as companies attempt to essentially squeeze their share price 
higher through uh, absorbing as much of their float as possible. And, you know, again, like I'm, I'm averse to market manipulation of any sort, but it does seem if you can have your share price at, you know, 50 or 350, you're going to have a lot more happy shareholders at 350 than 50. Uh, and if it's not illegal, maybe it's not such a bad idea for some of these other companies to, to do that too. So I think buybacks over dividends here, especially for companies that trade at large discounts to uh, easily verifiable valuation metrics that um, you, know, you want them to be accurate and you want them to be um, not... Um, you, you want them to be not sort of uh, cyclical high. So at, at the top of a cycle, you'll see lower multiples, um, but you, you'll see a premium to like replacement cost or book value or so on. So if you're if you're at a big discount to your replacement cost, you should be buying back stock as much as you can if you can afford it without risking your company. And in many cases, what companies are doing is taking their debt down to zero or near zero, and then buying back a lot of their stock. So it's pretty pretty exciting that's happening, and then even among the companies that aren't doing that, um, accretive acquisitions are sort of magical, right? It's one of those things where the reason to be in the public market is to issue stock when you're able to to create value for your your shareholders um, or to be able to buy it back when you're you're trading at a big discount. And I think people forget that sometimes they they focus too much on one thing or another, or they get really excited about financial metrics or whatever and sort of forget that there's this great tool, which is, being in the public markets, you have these freely tradable stocks, you're able to take your stock. And if you trade at four times cash flow, and you can find an asset at three times cash flow, and there's some synergies and some accretion and so on. I mean, you can actually, um, through uh, achieving synergies and buying something that's accretive, you can end up sort of double dipping and, um, you know, accomplishing a really nice uh, return for your shareholders too. Very good. All right. My final question for you here today, because I think we've covered Covered a lot. You know me. I, you know, we cover enough and, uh, you know, then everybody can do the deeper dive, follow you the whole bit. So my final question is that you recently, you know, now going back to price of uh, WTI, uh, you recently appeared on CNBC earlier this year and said that oil is a powder keg and could hit $100 per barrel this year. Like that, the CNBC must have loved you when you said all this stuff. Um, <laughs> but why do you think there is this decent chance of this happening pretty easily? Well, the the anchor almost fell off their chair. And, I, I watched the video. I saw it. She, she, and, yeah. And then if you see all of the links, uh, I looked at the their site and they had six other interviews and they were all bearish. And so <laughs> I point out oil was below $70 a barrel then, and it's up 10% since then in two weeks with 100% of people they were talking to bearish besides me. So that was sort of, you know, it feels good. And again, like I'm not in it for 10%, um, but, you know, it, it just, I think, was a, a good measure of sort of how bad sentiment was. And the reality is actually, if you look at a lot of the interviews today, people are still pretty bearish. And you still, yeah, folks get on, oh, I'm not sure, whatever. And again, like, I think no one's sure, right? There's always a lot of, of uncertainty. And um, I think it's just helpful to sort of analyze what you have available and then come up with a view. Um, and I, I try to take sort of longer term views. And, and ultimately, my view on oil and gas is there's not been enough exploration. And if there's not enough exploration and not enough delineation, prices will go much higher over time until that gets fixed. Um, so for the reasons we talked about before in terms of, you know, the, the Middle East risk 
and um, the potential supply disruption, as well as just sort of this um, trend up as inventories fall and as some of the negative stuff from last year sort of unwinds. You know, there were sort of the narratives on shale growth were sort of half true. Yeah, it grew, but it couldn't keep growing at low activity levels. Uh, Iran, yeah, they exported a lot, but a lot of it was actually out of storage versus production and so on. So just as those things unwind, I think I think we have a good shot at higher oil prices. And then if there is some sort of disruption or there's some other sort of bigger economic positive, I think we could we could easily see a hundred and you know, like we saw in 2022, like one geopolitical change, which actually didn't really affect global oil supply almost at all. Um, people thought it would, but it didn't. Um, one real risk to the oil supply could send oil up another $40 a barrel. Very good. I mean, you know, you, you got me inspiring writing the title for this pod already. I have unwinding okay. the the oil and gas uh, negative sentiment. You know, so I think I think that's probably really the main takeaway, right, from from our conversation today is that like, you know, you're more on the side of bullish, but you know, that's not without risk. I mean, with anything, but I mean, uh, listen, these sectors have just been, I mean, oil and gas mostly in the last six months, but just micro small cap in the last two years, you know, this is where, you know, go where it's hated, or at least, you know, take a take a deeper dive, learn more, you know, uh, not financial advice by any means, but you know, hey, yeah. one one quick disclosure, Josh. You mentioned NVIDIA, you're a shareholder in that. I'm not. Beautiful. All right. So I we're there, man. Um, where can our audience go and find more information on you, follow you on social media, as well as Bison Interests? Yeah, uh, Bison's website is bisoninterest.com. Uh, we have a Twitter, which is at Bison Interests. And then I have a Twitter that I'm probably too active on at Josh underscore young underscore one. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's always fun to do these. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think the next one we should uh, talk more about recent books that we've read. I think uh, I think people love uh, anyone that's listening to finance podcast is probably also interested in um, hearing about the latest finance books or in some cases, the one up on Wall Streets and, you know, what you've, uh, what you've just, learned. From just, some fresh, just some fresh takes. I mean, you know. I'll, I'll say this, like, I just, I, I can't believe this is my first, I read uh, Joel Greenblatt's uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius for the first time, finally, you know, this year. And it, and it's a trip, you know, reading it, you know, a book that was published in 97 in reading in 2024 and, you know, just the things that still 100% apply and then thing, you know, like my favorite part, I was joking with somebody this morning of like, you know, he says, where to go find information? You know, the Wall Street Journal is the best, you know, and value line, I'm like, all right, you know, 97, that's where you went, 97. But, uh, you know, I totally agree. I think that would be a lot of fun to uh, to do kind of a, a little book review type stuff, you know. Yeah, and on, on that note, I'll point you to, if you like that, you'll love the little book that beats the market. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, Joel Greenblatt's, like, 80-page, like, mini book that uh, in various language explains how most people lose money or do poorly in the stock market and how you can just, just by being an, a contrarian value investor, quantitatively, um, even if you don't want to spend a lot of time, you can still do a lot better um, in, in investing uh, than, than if you just go with passive flows, which are sort of overwhelming the market right now. And the more people do it, the less likely it is to, to do well. Oh, for sure. He's such a good writer, man. I, I'll, I'll read whatever he puts out there for sure. But uh, dude, this is awesome. 
Uh, look forward to our next chat, man. Good luck. Stay safe. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Later. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.